Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad to have you joining us this week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Uh, We are here each week on Sundays at noon, and we also stream at this time on tarletonradio.com. If you missed the show on Sundays or you want to listen to previous episodes, you can always go to SoundCloud and see our full archive of recent shows. We post on Facebook so that you can see what we are talking about each week, uh, the issues that we're covering, and you can also download wherever you get your podcasts. So lots of ways to listen uh, to On Politics and stay up with some of the most pressing issues and some quality analysis of major things that are happening in the world of politics and policy today. We're very glad today to welcome back to the show Dr. Malcolm Cross, Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State. And as always, uh, Dr. Cross, our our resident expert here on the presidency uh, and the executive, he teaches a class uh, uh, to our students, uh, but also is is always willing and able to offer commentary uh, on all things presidential. Uh, And we did have some significant, uh, or at least a milestone that we hit this last week. And so we asked Dr. Cross to come on and to talk about the significance of 100 days. Uh, This is uh, something in terms of the the presidency and what expectations are there, and at least the the kind of uh, uh, focus that are put on uh, political agenda and, of course, uh, promises kept, uh, at least in terms of that time period, or at least where the administration may be going and to have a check. So first of all, welcome, Dr. Cross. We're glad to have you back on the show. Well, thanks, Eric. Um, Thanks for inviting me back. Thanks for your very generous introduction as well. Glad to be back. Very good. Well, we always uh, appreciate your insight uh, as well as uh, 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 the humor sometimes that goes along with it in terms of your uh, knowledge of these issues, but also helping us to understand their place historically and as well as what their significance uh, are today politically. And so the first question really is 100 days. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that we could go back to George Washington and and look at the media of that time. We might. I don't know. I think I'm asking you that question to see where did this come from? Why the first 100 days? Why so much emphasis is placed uh, on this time period for a presidential administration? Well, this goes back to the first term of President Franklin Roosevelt, who was elected president in November 1932, and then he was inaugurated president on March 4th, 1933. Uh, It would not be until 1936 that we would move up inauguration dates to January 20th. But President Roosevelt had, uh, you know, was determined to uh, begin America's effort to recover from the Great Depression, and uh, during the first 100 days of his administration, The Congress, at his behest, uh, passed much of the original New Deal legislation. And ever since that time, uh, 100 days has been uh, kind of the benchmark against which future presidents or subsequent presidents, rather, uh, have been judged. So whenever a new president takes office, uh, he's going to be judged by what he's done during the first 100 days in memory of President Roosevelt. Does this have an, uh, an impact on how they design their agenda then in that case, since this has become uh, now at least for, you know, approaching a century now, we have this as a, as a marker for a presidential administration uh, in terms of their planning as they're coming into office? Uh, how, how, do they, how do they view that? I mean, is that something that, that really tries to guide that agenda at least early on and knowing what they can get done right away? Yes, Um Political scientists who've studied the effectiveness of presidents as lawmakers uh, have noted that if a president offers his agenda uh, at the beginning of his administration, he's more likely to be accorded a honeymoon period by the Congress. Uh, You know, the Congress uh, frequently wants him to succeed. He's a new incoming president, and many people have their hopes pinned on him and on his success. Um, Besides uh, time... Uh, for opposition to organize itself uh, has not yet uh, been enough. So, uh, you know, after a couple of months, uh, opposition begins to, uh, you know, begins to get organized and begins to push back against the president. So sophisticated presidents know that 
if they can hit the ground running uh, and have, an, have a legislative agenda uh, ready to present, as soon as they're inaugurated, they're going to be more likely to succeed, partly because of the goodwill that's normally extended to them by Congress and partly because the opposition has not yet gotten its act together. And presidential scholars point out that uh, presidents should begin uh, planning their agenda not before their inauguration, but before their actual election. And presidential candidates will frequently begin developing agendas, uh, developing lists of men and women whom they want to nominate for office, you know, after they've been nominated uh, by their parties, but before they've been elected. And if they're, you know, if they're defeated, then uh, their efforts uh, ultimately go for nothing. But if they're elected, uh, they can really hit the ground running. So, so some would compare, and I've seen this in a few places where they would look back at, at Franklin Roosevelt, look at him coming into office, and then look at the Biden administration coming into office with the, the pandemic, with the economic impact of it. I mean, this is, is a significant uh, uh, uh events that have been happening that have impacted the nation as a whole. But of course, we can look back at President Obama with the, the Great Recession. You can look back, I guess, to Reagan, at, at least in terms of the modern presidency. It, how does this first hundred days uh, uh, compare in terms of what was there that a presidential administration would have to address and, and have to have the as their primary focus? Is this really that unusual that there is some level of crisis or some challenges that uh, a presidential administration has to be prepared for uh, as they come into office? Um, that's frequently the case. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980 um, following the Iranian hostage crisis, double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment on President Carter's watch, and uh, he was promising to have legislation introduced that would address these issues, and his supporters in Congress uh, were prepared to help carry them out. Uh, one saw right off the bat uh, uh, serious consideration given, given to his tax cut proposals to try to jumpstart the economy, uh, consideration given to his proposals to, uh, to accelerate uh, the defense buildup begun by President Carter following the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, similarly, President Obama took office as we were sliding into the Great Recession and uh, immediately wanted to address various issues, uh, an early stimulus package, uh, as well as the adoption of health care. President, uh, as far as President Biden is concerned, the twin issues he wants to address are, first of all, the pandemic. And to that end, he's accelerated the distribution of vaccines that began to be produced as a result of former President Trump's Operation Warp Speed. And he also wants to accelerate American uh, uh, economic recovery uh, through a stimulus package that has already been passed by the Congress, thereby chalking up you know, his first great win. And uh, the Democrats have made much of the need uh, uh, to take more effective action on climate change as well, and uh, hence uh, Green New Deal proposals uh, will be will probably be on the table uh, uh, during tonight's address to the to the nation. Sure. Yes. And, and, and we're recording this in advance of that address. And I, I, I think that was one of my questions for you with with looking kind of into the uh, the future a little bit with this about what what he's going to propose, but many are saying that this will be a a, a large request for an infrastructure package that you know we're talking about trillions of dollars and and what we've seen in this at least in the first uh, 100 days uh, related to the stimulus related to addressing the pandemic of course some of these we've you know there, there's been some consensus that we need this this level of spending to address some of that but of course it's 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 moving further along in terms of this focus on uh domestic issues and i want to get to the foreign policy side in, in a moment um but I, I guess some of the challenges that are that are present presented to the administration is that a lot of what 
policy things are being proposed are uh, cost a significant amount uh, of money. And uh, I think that's one of the things that that we're looking at here in terms of, of whether it's a legacy issue or whether what the Biden administration is able to accomplish in 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 uh, this term or not, um, what what where do we look back to find any examples? I mean, is it all the way back to FDR or is it others where uh, the the way forward was proposing significant amount of spending that? Uh, in an attempt to try to get past the crisis with the hopes that if things improve, uh, then you're looking back and saying, okay, well, how do we pay all this off? Because we were already in significant debt, even coming out of the Trump administration with uh, the pandemic uh, hitting as well. I mean, it just seems like it's it's uh, uh, compounding. And uh, I'm wondering how that would compare to another 100 days that we may have seen with a previous presidential administration. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the best analogy would be FDR's New Deal. Um, uh, what one could also uh, make some comparisons um, with uh, the Great Society program of President Johnson. But if you look at uh, some of what uh, uh, President Biden has been talking about and what he's uh, likely to propose either tonight or within the foreseeable future, uh, we see things like a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan um, a pandemic relief bill, the 2.3, well, that's already been passed, but we also see a $2.3 trillion American jobs plan uh, or infrastructure uh, bill that uh, President Biden is advocating, a $1.8 trillion American families plan uh, to facilitate uh, uh, greater access to higher education, uh, New Deal for cities, uh, a Green New Deal for public housing, uh, all sorts of programs uh, that collectively could send federal, federal spending um, in excess of six, $6 trillion above what was being spent uh, uh, before Joe Biden became president. And this is an enormous jump in spending that President Biden is proposing, and um, uh, much greater, I think, than what President Johnson was proposing uh, for the great society. Uh, so I think really the best analogy uh, was the New Deal programs being proposed by President Franklin Roosevelt. Although if you go back and look at the history of the New Deal, much of the money that he was talking about being spent on the New Deal programs is positively dwarfed by what President Biden and the Democrats are proposing now. And I think that one of the reasons why uh, President Biden and the Democrats want to be so ambitious uh, in pursuing these goals is that they realize that there's a good chance that they could lose at least one, if not both houses of the Congress in 2022. So they probably see this uh, two-year period um, uh, before the next elections uh, as being their window of opportunity, mm-hmm. and they've got to take maximum advantage of it before the window of opportunity closes with the 2022 general congressional elections. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's very likely in looking at some of the, I guess, the tea leaves here politically that that these uh, attempts to get these policies passed and attempt and the focus on spending. I mean, we can look back to the uh, President Obama with his uh, the Affordable Care Act. And then, of course, that had an impact on the midterm elections uh, that that this could either way. I mean, that if the possibility that they were going to lose control of Congress or that this would influence that as well, which it was certainly will. Uh, it's going to be another probably very close election in many ways to see uh, who retains a control of one house or the other. Um, this also, I, I was thinking too, this dwarfs the, even coming out of the Bush administration into the Obama administration, the toxic a- asset relief, the bailout of the auto industry. I mean, there you were talking about, you know, one and a half to two trillion, uh, which uh, is what uh, was seen seemed just enormous at that time. And here we're talking about upwards of six trillion. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering uh, again, and, and this may help our listeners in terms of, of presidential politics and looking at it from the perspective of, of the two different parties and kind of the way that they approach the role that government has. Certainly the Biden administration coming in and seeing that government is, is part of the solution here and a very aggressive focus on, on various policy areas is, is significant. Um, what what does 
what is the outcome here that Democrats hope to achieve that would help to pay for this in the long run? Uh, again, I think you know what we might see from the Republican side would be more either measured or you know targeted or um, uh, maybe not such as broad a programs as what as what is being proposed. But I think that's always the question that comes to mind. I think especially coming out of the Trump administration, where uh, uh, we didn't always see conservative economic principles applied. Uh, and now we have a, a Biden administration where that's not even on the table. It's more of we've got a focus here of what we can we can do and accomplish. Uh, and I think I think the average person out there kind of struggles with that. How do how do they think that this will turn out in terms of being able to pay back uh, this massive amount of debt uh, that is uh, a part of this very first 100 days aggressive agenda? Well, first of all, it ought to be kept in mind that both parties really believe in big government um, in pursuit of their policy goals. Uh, they do have different policy goals. So um, uh, the Republicans uh, are more likely to want big government in the area of national security, national defense, uh, the Democrats more so in the area of domestic spending. Um, as far as uh, debt and paying back the debt, uh, it is absolutely certain beyond the slightest shadow of a doubt that our national deficit and our national debt are going to skyrocket under the Democrats. Although, to be perfectly fair to the Democrats, the Republicans uh, have certainly uh, allowed massive debts and deficits to accumulate during the Reagan administration and uh, during the George W. Bush administration and now during the Donald Trump administration. Um, as far as trying to pay back the debt is concerned, both parties have their myths about uh, how you can pay back the debt. The Democrats tell us falsely that uh, if you simply tax the rich, you can generate enough money to uh, bring deficit and debt under control. Uh, the big problem is that there simply aren't enough rich people with enough money uh, to be able to pull that one off. Now, the Republicans have their own myth. They tell us falsely that if you cut taxes enough, you will stimulate enough economic growth so that the tax cuts will pay for themselves and generate more money. Uh, that has uh, simply not happened uh, since this myth was first uh, introduced at the beginning of the Reagan administration in 1981. Um, uh, the plain, blunt truth of the matter is that both parties are utterly irresponsible when it comes to uh, fiscal management, deficits, and debt. I'm absolutely convinced that if private corporations uh, ran their businesses with the uh, same lack of integrity with which the Democratic and the Republican parties uh, govern America's finances, um, every corporation in America would promptly become bankrupt and every corporate leader would promptly be sent to prison for misappropriation of funds and all sorts of other financial sins. Well, I think this is where the politics comes into play, too, because it, 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 it looks like, especially if we're talking about the first 100 days and, and then how that sets the tone for the administration, but it seems like the focus is on those political wins, those, those policy wins that connect with enough uh, cons constituents to help you to maintain power and position in terms of uh, within government. And, uh, and and so a lot of this looks like that, that especially in, in, in the policies that Biden is proposing, will target uh, certain areas. Now, whether that, again, will benefit them in the midterm or work against them, that's that's yet to be seen. But but I think it's it's important that people understand that the the, the politics of all of this uh, outweigh, <laughs> it seems like, and we've seen this over and over again, that fiscal responsibility, because sometimes doing the making those hard decisions fiscally are not very popular uh, politically. And, and to me, and I don't know, uh, Malcolm, I, I guess this is a question I have that that a that a first 100 day agenda yes it 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 may be focused on critical issues that need to be addressed, and this is the person that's been elected to do this, but it is very much imbued with, with politics, very much imbued with uh, what someone can accomplish and how they can maintain uh, power uh, and as well as address the constituents that helped put them into office. Uh, I don't, in terms of your, you know, your kind of insight on that, um, I mean, I don't, 
put percentages here, you know, 50%, okay, it's, it's pragmatic, you know, focused on policy issues and so on. And the other has politics, but um, how, how much do you see that in the mix here as we look ahead to midterms, as we look to 2024, because some of these things that are being proposed are, are going to, to uh, move well beyond that in years in terms of, especially if you look at infrastructure and so on, in terms of what, what can be funded. And as we know, these very large programs, once they are in place, they're very hard uh, to remove. And so we see government kind of locked in to certain things that uh, may be very, uh, uh, but may be with us for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that uh, both Democrats and Republicans alike Hope, first of all, that uh, good politics and good policy are intertwined. Uh, you implement uh, programs that are beneficial. The people will reward you with uh, re-election. And so you really can't separate the politics from the policy. They're kind of like uh, conjoined Siamese twins. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't separate them. Uh, uh, each needs the other to survive. Okay. Um, I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, you know, as I've indicated, the Democrats want to get as much done now, partly because they no doubt think that their policies are going to be genuinely beneficial, uh, partly because they think they're not going to have a chance after 2022. One pattern of politics that uh, both the Democrats and Republicans ought to be careful of, but especially the Democrats, is this. Uh, both Bill Clinton in 1993, uh, his first year as president, uh, tried to pursue an ambitious program of uh, tax increases uh, to help pare down the deficit, as well as national health care. And he was widely regarded, he and the Democrats were widely regarded as, as uh, overreaching. And uh, the Democrats lost both houses of Congress in 1994. Uh, in 1994, for the first time in 40 years, the Republicans actually won the House of Representatives, and they knocked out about 50 or 60 Democrats in the process. Similarly, Barack Obama, uh, pursuing big-ticket stimulus items and uh, Obamacare, uh, provoked a backlash that uh, resulted in the loss of about 50 seats in the uh, for the Democrats in the House of Representatives, uh, Republican takeover of the House, and uh, President Biden may well be courting this problem as well. Uh, the House of Representatives, well, the Senate is evenly balanced right now between Democrats and Republicans. The House of Representatives almost evenly balanced in the switch of a, maybe three or four seats uh, could give the Republicans the majority in the speakership. And it could well be that uh, the American people will uh, perceive uh, President uh, Biden's program as so overreaching that there'll be a reaction uh, against it. Once people settle down and begin thinking about the question of how are we going to pay for all this, um, Biden, and you know, for that matter, uh, you know, ever since uh, we've had the national debt, which has been, you know, which uh, the current debt uh, began to accumulate during the administration of President Martin Van Buren who was elected president in 1836. Um, Under his predecessor, Andrew Jackson, the national debt was paid off. But uh, ever since then, we've been taking a buy now, pay later uh, approach. And the national debt has grown so great uh, that uh, it could well become a buy now, pay never approach. Mm -hmm. But people are going to start wondering, how do we pay for all this? And it's interesting to note that Biden is proposing new spending programs now and promising to introduce new tax programs to pay for them. But we're getting to spending first and the taxing later, if we get it at all. Yeah. Well, back, back to the 100 days as a, as a way to kind of wrap up here. If you, if you look at the Biden administration, I know the AP and, and others have had these uh, stories out where they say, well, you know, he's, he's kept about two thirds of the promises that he's made and some are in progress and all that. But, but I think in, in terms of, of your, your knowledge of the presidency 
and what the Biden administration has had to take on and what is the, the extent of their uh, of the promises and the things that he's uh, addressed in these first 100 days. Uh, how, how does this compare? Uh, is it is it too aggressive? Is it uh, too many areas too broad? Is it uh, do you see it as meeting some of the, the main uh, issues at the forefront uh, at the moment? Um, how do you see this in comparison with other uh, presidents and, and uh, you know, the modern presidency in terms of, a, of a, an agenda for the first 100 days? Well, scholars who've uh, studied uh, uh, the legislative successes of presidents uh, tell us that a legislative program is most likely to succeed not only if it is um, offered uh, at the beginning of the president's term, but also uh, if it is either relatively short in agenda items or at the very least uh, is organized around a common theme, a common approach. Uh, one of the most unsuccessful presidents uh, in terms of presenting a legislative president leg legislative agenda was President Jimmy Carter who had numerous proposals that he shot up to Congress during his first 100 days, uh, but there was no common theme. Uh, there were simply too many uh, uh, proposals offered, uh, no organizing principle that anyone could, could discern. Now, if you look at, say, President Johnson or President Franklin Roosevelt or President Theodore Roosevelt, really the first president to offer a comprehensive uh, legislative agenda, uh, you had a common organizing principle, namely expanding the power of the federal government to solve social problems on which a public consensus had developed that these problems have got to be solved. Uh, when Ronald Reagan became president, he had uh, a relatively short agenda, um, cut taxes, raise defense spending, and these might seem to be pretty contradictory but there weren't too many proposals really that he was offering. And so the Congress was able to get its collective mind about it. Same with George W. Bush, cut taxes, um, launched the No Child Left Behind Act. Those were his two big ticket items before 9-11 hit him. Um, as far as Joe Biden is concerned, the weakness of his legislative agenda is that he may be asking for too much, too soon, with too high a price tag. The strength of this legislative agenda is that there is still a very discernible common theme, namely uh, expanded government action to handle the pandemic, uh, handle unemployment, uh, handle climate change. The expanded government action is the unifying principle, and that strengthens his uh, legislative agenda. That plus the fact that the Democrats want him to succeed uh, before the uh, election uh, uh, increases the chances that uh, that much, uh, probably most of this agenda will in point of fact be adopted. Uh, they want him to succeed now because uh, once the midterm comes, uh, the chances for success go down. Right, right. Well, and especially since he's, he had said initially about being a one-term uh, president, uh, we'll see how how that what happens. But that could even make it more of a lame duck presidency if the Republicans gain control of Congress. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you one one last question that I thought of uh, uh, was domestic versus foreign policy agenda. Again, this has been very heavy domestic, uh, other than the focus on uh, the border. Last week, I had Dr. Tony Payan, if you remember from. Uh, Rice, who came and he spoke last week, we talked about uh, border issues and really some of the challenges that were not expected for the Biden administration uh, uh, there. Uh, but it seems like that this is a very, very heavy domestic agenda uh, and very short on, uh, on on foreign policy and, and those, uh, in certain areas there. And I didn't know in, in terms of looking at uh, these kinds of 
policy agendas for the first 100 days, uh, you know, and maybe this is where it needs to be because you're right, there is a theme there of addressing the pandemic, unemployment, getting the economy uh, back on track or at least growing. Um, uh, it, where where does this stand if we look back in terms of, of comparing uh, the first 100 days? Does this create some, some issues and some concerns that foreign policy is not really as strong and visible in his policy agenda uh, as it has been for other presidents? Well, it's typically been the case that presidents have emphasized domestic affairs over foreign affairs, um, uh, mainly because uh, the American people are more interested in domestic mm -hmm. affairs and a, president's, a presidency will be made or broken uh, more on domestic affairs and foreign affairs, especially on the state of the economy. As a general rule, uh, no president of the United States can win re-election if the public does not like the state of the economy at the time the president is up for re-election. doesn't matter what his foreign policy triumphs may be. For example, um, in 1991, George H.W. Bush, following the first Persian Gulf War, had approval ratings in excess of 90 percent. And... Um, the public loved the way that he organized uh, the coalition uh, to defeat uh, Saddam Hussein and drive him out of Kuwait. And his astronomically high popularity ratings uh, discouraged uh, heavy-hitting Democrats like Lloyd Benson, Mario Cuomo, Sam Nunn from seeking the Democratic presidential nomination, uh, leading uh, uh, to the rise of second-tier uh, candidates like Bill Clinton. Um, and but uh, just 18 months later, uh, President Bush was defeated for re-election, winning uh, the smallest percentage of the popular vote other than William Howard Taft of any incumbent running for re-election. He got 38 percent of the vote. And the reason was public dissatisfaction with the economy that trumped all of Bush's uh, foreign policy triumphs. Uh, he was considered a genius at foreign policy, but that counted for Diddley squad in the. 1992 election. So domestic politics uh, is normally a president's chief preoccupation, uh, partly because the American people care more about domestic politics, especially inflation and unemployment, and uh, partly because presidents know that uh, their terms will be made or broken uh, more on the basis of domestic politics and especially the uh, economy than on anything else. Um, now, uh, you know, some presidents uh, discover uh, that they have to become, contrary to their desires, foreign policy presidents when the foreign policy crisis that nobody foresees uh, begins to take over. One thinks of World War II, 9-11. Um, Lyndon Johnson wanted desperately to be a great domestic policy president, got himself bogged down in... in um, in Vietnam and felt he ultimately had to retire. Very so good. Uh, yeah. domestic policy is the big yeah. one. Well, thank, thank you. And thank you for that analysis uh, on all fronts. I mean, that I think that helps us to, to put this in context that this is not just a, uh, a marker uh, along the way, but that uh, the, 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 as the presidential administration is preparing to come into office, their focus and, and why this is so significant, both in terms of politics, but also in getting an agenda off and in, in, in the direction that they want it to go. And, and of course, knowing that elections are coming up in 2022, I mean, that, that that's always, I think, I brought that up on, on uh, several aspects of the show. In fact, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, people who are considered GOP front runners, just reminding people that this cycle never ends. As soon as we finish an election and install a new president, it it all ramps up again uh, for the for the next one. But I, I, yes, go ahead, Malcolm. Yes, I was about to say that not only is the 2024 presidential election already underway beneath the surface, um, but people are probably thinking in terms of 2028 and 2032. It's not unusual uh, for people to be contemplating presidential elections uh, two cycles, three cycles out. Right, right. 
Very good. Well, thank you again, Malcolm. This is great to have you on the show again and to have this, uh, your, always your great analysis and, and perspective on, uh, on these types of issues. And uh, it's a benefit to our listeners to really understand and go a little bit deeper uh, in the significance of the first 100 days of the presidency. So thank you. And we'll look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Well, I enjoyed it and always happy to help out. We will take a quick break and we will be back for more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we hope you joined us for that first part of the show where we interviewed Dr. Malcolm Cross regarding the first 100 days of the Biden administration. So some great information there. If you missed that, you can catch it on SoundCloud after the show airs. You can also uh, download where you get your podcast. Uh, but I would encourage you to go back and, and listen in, to that and understanding why this is significant, going back to FDR and all presidents coming forward about that first 100 days in office and what is the significance of that milestone and some great uh, insight and analysis as always from Dr. Cross. I wanna go back to the, one of the issues that I brought up at the end of the show last week, and that is the new uh, anti-riot laws that have been passed in several states. Uh, last week, we started looking at these in Florida and Oklahoma, just to kind of set this up in this environment post-election the presidential election back in November, uh, when uh, we now see some of this focus on certain things. Uh, one has been voter security uh, vote versus voter restrictions. Uh, and I'm using those uh, that terminology because uh, this is what's coming from different sides and different perspectives of these laws uh, that are focused on uh, kind of tightening up uh, voting requirements and what especially here in Texas, what uh, local election officials are able to do, what latitude they have. And of course, I've been trying to be balanced in all of this to look at the pragmatic aspects of it, uh, that yes, there always are concerns about voter fraud, even though the data doesn't show that that's, that's widespread, that still doesn't mean you do not put the mechanisms in place to prevent it. Uh, but on the other side, uh, some of the, the things that local officials have been doing are costly, uh, they then require higher levels of security. And so there's some legitimacy to raising these concerns, but then there's also uh, then a way, the argument that we need to look at, how do we make voting more accessible? Uh, how do we accommodate uh, people who can't drive or people who don't have cars or people like in this case, the pandemic, that the exposure possibilities uh, to uh, COVID-19. Uh, and what we're not seeing is that discussion in the middle of what's what, what's really pragmatic, what's doable, uh, what's maybe cost effective in the delivery of elections. And so I, I put this, this, these laws about anti, they're calling anti-rioting in the same category uh, because you already have lawsuits filed uh, about these laws and against them saying that they're unconstitutional, they're attacking uh, the right to speech and assembly and so forth. And that's on the one side. The other side is the, the fact that local governments and even state governments are concerned about the impact of rioting and the, and the costliness of it, the expense of it. Uh, how do you respond to it? Uh, and so just looking at the law in Florida for just a moment and kind of talking about some of the aspects of it, the, the new uh, crimes that have been identified in the law in, in Florida uh, is targeted at aggravated rioting, which makes it a felony, and mob intimidation becomes a first-degree misdemeanor in which three or more people use violence or the threat of it to change someone's views. Uh, lawmakers said the measure, which is punishable by a sentence of up to one year, 
comes in response to viral incidents in which crowds of protesters would confront diners eating at outdoor restaurants. Uh, other misdemeanors include such blocking a highway during a demonstration. Uh, they've been bumped up to felonies. So anyone in Florida arrested in certain riot related crimes will not be able to post bail until their first court appearance. And anyone convicted of a felony under the law could lose their right to vote. The law also increases protections to those responding to demonstrations, granting civil legal immunity to drivers who run through crowds of protesters and ramps up consequences of property damage during moments of unrest. Uh, it also focuses here that can, on Confederate monuments and other historic property received additional protection while anyone whose property is damaged during a riot can sue a local government. Okay, so this puts a more responsibility on local governments to provide protection, uh, property protection uh, in these kinds of events. Now you can see from, from reading that, that there's a mixture of things here, especially some of these incidents that have happened uh, where you know motor vehicles have been used against uh, uh, protesters. Uh, uh, of course, some of these events have had violence and have seen property destruction. And so there, there's a lot again of, of positioning in terms of the politics of this. Uh, but what I don't see in this is that, again, that discussion about uh, what's the best way forward to, to deal with this. Uh, it's, it's being handled by those kind of on the, the, the edges who are trying to, to engage with this in a way that pushes back at the other side. And of course, a lot of policy, uh, in, in a lot of policymaking that, that happens, especially with controversial issues, and especially issues that may test the boundaries of constitutional rights, like we're looking at here. So where, where is this going to go? Well, we're gonna see the court challenges. Uh, to some of this. So it means that some of the laws may be, uh, some of the aspects of these new laws may be curtailed uh, or they may be let stand. Uh, that is dependent upon how far it goes in the legal system. Uh, on the other side of it, it's the testing of it. When we have these particular events and things happen and then people file uh, lawsuits over using this law or government takes action using uh, these new laws. Uh, but in this polarized environment that we're in, you have different people taking different sides, looking at it politically, looking at it as the other side trying to infringe upon the rights of others, or in some cases here, we're looking at the costs of these kinds of things, of, of maintaining order. How do we maintain order? How does government maintain order while also allowing people to express their views and opinions publicly to assemble, uh, to speak out on the specific issues, uh, but again, not to damage property, threaten life, uh, and, and other otherwise. So this is going to be, a, again, another issue. And I, and I think one of the things that we're starting to see here, and we'll just be following this and see if this plays out, but we're starting to see uh, the, uh, 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 and not that I have to say this, this is not the first time this has happened in our country, but but we, we're starting to see things line up around certain constitutional issues uh, related to politics, related to uh, partisanship, related to uh, groups that are on different sides of the political spectrum and how they're engaging with each other. Uh, and this is uh, can be very, very challenging if this continues along this spectrum uh, where we see state laws, uh, laws that end up in the courts and so on that begin to be very controversial and to be focused on these constitutional rights and how they're interpreted and how they're understood and how they're how they play out in states as they implement these laws. So we'll be tracking this and looking at other issues as well as they come up. I don't think we're done here. I think we're we're going to go through cycles here uh, with various things from federal resources that are available to states and how they use those uh, to a focus on certain things like this, protesting, rioting, voting, all of those things that are in the mix of our political expression within our society, but which people see and interpret saying, well, we have to have boundaries or we have to limit things. We have to uh, use the law itself uh, to try to maintain order or to give authorities uh, that uh, ability, that foundation that they can stand on in order to act uh, to either protect life and property 
or to uh, have people peacefully demonstrate and protest. So it'll be interesting to see where some of this goes. I wanted to come back to that for a little bit of commentary. Uh, but before we wrap up the show today, I wanted to look at another issue going back to the Biden administration, and that was the recognition this past week by President Biden of the Armenian Genocide, the first president since Ronald Reagan to refer to the events on the eve of World War I in 1915 that happened in Turkey. And I want to read you a little background here. This may not be an issue that most people are familiar with, being on uh, the other side of the world, being over a century ago. Uh, but this recognition was significant for several reasons. Uh, first, it uh, it is an issue in which the Turkish government has lobbied against having the uh, U.S. government and specifically the president recognize uh, what happened uh, in the early 20th century in Turkey as a genocide, uh, as the targeted killing of people of a specific ethnic group. And, and so that has been a very much a focus, and, and a lot of that has been wrapped up in the United States relationship with Turkey as a NATO ally, its strategic place in the world, but a lot of that is, has been changing, and there's been strained relationships with Turkey on a number of fronts, uh, not only in what has happened internally within the country in terms of, uh, of freedoms and what we recognize as important uh, to political expression, but then also because Turkey has been moving closer and closer relationships with Russia, uh, just buying a new missile defense system from Russia, uh, and, and, and engaging with other uh, bilateral uh, type things in terms of their, their foreign policy. And of course, our view and, and concerns in this country, or at least the Biden administration, has been uh, looking at Russia in terms of its aggression, Ukraine and other places, but also raising concerns about uh, our relationship and where that is uh, with Russia. And so that's in the mix as well uh, with Turkey. And so I think that provided the, the opening here. Uh, and it was a campaign promise of President Biden when he was running for election uh, to recognize this event. And so for those of you that are not familiar, uh, just a little bit of background here. Uh, in the early 20th century, there were two million Armenians that were living in the declining Ottoman Empire. So not yet Turkey by that point, but by 1922, there were fewer than 400,000. The others, some 1.5 million were killed in what many historians consider to be a genocide. And I'm, I'm taking this information from a New York Times article that provides a little background on this event. As David Fromkin put it in his widely praised history of World War I and its aftermath, a peace to end all peace, rape and beating were co commonplace. Those who were not killed at once were driven through mountains and deserts without food, drink, or shelter. Hundreds of thousands of Armenians eventually succumbed or were killed. The man who invented the word genocide, Raphael Lemkin, a lawyer of Polish Jewish origin, was moved to investigate the attempt to eliminate an entire people by accounts of the massacres of Armenians. Uh, he did not, however, coin the word until 1943, applying it to Nazi Germany and the Jews in a book published a year later, Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. But to Turks, what happened in 1915 at most was just one more messy piece of very messy war that spelled the end of a once powerful empire. They reject the conclusions of historians and the term genocide, saying there was no premeditation in the deaths, no systematic attempt to destroy a people. Indeed, in Turkey today, it remains a crime, insulting Turkishness, even to raise the issue of what happened to the Armenians. In the United States, a powerful Armenian community centered in Los Angeles has been pressing for years for Congress to condemn the Armenian genocide. Turkey, which cut military ties to France over a similar action, has reacted with angry threats. A bill to that effect nearly passed in the fall of 2007, gaining a majority of co-sponsors and passing a committee vote. But the Bush administration, noting that Turkey is a critical ally, more than 70% of the military air supplies for Iraq go through Incirlik Air Base there, pressed for the bill to be withdrawn, and it was. 
Under the Ottoman Empire, the empire's rule was also the caliph or the leader of the Islamic community. Minority religious communities like Christian Armenians were allowed to maintain their religious, social, and legal structures, but were often subject to extra taxes or other measures. Concentrated largely in eastern Anatolia, many of the merchants and industrialists, Armenians, historians say, appeared markedly better off in many ways than their Turkish neighbors, largely small peasants or ill-paid government functionaries and soldiers. At the turn of the 20th century, the once far-flung Ottoman Empire was crumbling at its edges. Beset by revolts among Christian subjects to the north, vast swaths of territory were lost in the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 13, and the subject of coffeehouse grumbling among Arab nationalists, intellectuals in Damascus and everywhere. The Young Turk movement of ambitious, discontented junior army officers seized power in 1908, determined to modernize, strengthen, and Turkify the empire. They were led by what became an all-powerful triumvirate, sometimes referred to as the Three Pashas. In March of 1914, the Young Turks entered World War I on the side of Germany. They attacked to the east, hoping to capture the city of Baku in what would be a disastrous campaign against Russian forces in the Caucasus. They were soundly defeated at the Battle of Sarikemish. Armenians in the area were blamed for siding with the Russians, and the Young Turks began a campaign to portray the Armenians as a kind of fifth column, a threat to the state. Indeed, there were Armenian nationalists who acted as guerrillas and cooperated with the Russians. They briefly seized the city of Van in the spring of 1915. Armenians marked the date of April 24, 1915, when several hundred Armenian intellectuals were rounded up, arrested, and later executed as the start of the Armenian Genocide, and is generally said to have extended to 1917. However, there were also massacres of Armenians in 1894, 95, and 96, 1909, and a reprise between 1920 and 23. The University of Minnesota Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies has compiled figures by province and district that show that there were 2.1 million Armenians in the empire in 1914 and only about 387,000 by 1922. So this is a, a significant event uh, that happened early in the 20th century. Uh, this is what President Biden was responding to and referring to it as genocide. There are certainly politics in the mix here because of Turkey being an ally for so long, but we are seeing some changes in that part of the world. We're seeing some changes in terms of American foreign policy and its relationship with Turkey. And I think this provided the opportunity uh, for President Biden to step forward on this issue uh, and to identify what has happened, or at least recognize on the part uh, of the United States, uh, at least the United States president, of what happened well over a century ago, uh, which is significant. It means uh, it's, a, it's a significant statement for the Armenian community in this country and around the world uh, in recognizing this because of the impact that it has had uh, on the diaspora. Armenians spread all over the world, but also uh, Armenians uh, in their country of origin. I want to thank you for joining us today on politics. Join us each week right here on KTRL. 90.5 FM for our show focusing on politics and policy at the state, national, federal, and sometimes the local level. And so we'll look forward to having you with us each and every week uh, right here Sundays at noon or follow us on Facebook so you get interesting articles to read that go along with the topics we cover. Download previous episodes wherever you get your podcast and listen on SoundCloud, our full episode since we began our archive there so that you can go back and listen on great topics. Thank you for joining us. with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.